0: Our sermon text this morning is Job chapter 15, the first 16 verses, so if you'll turn in your Bibles to Job chapter 15. So all three of Job's friends have spoken, Job has responded to each of them, and now we are in the second cycle of speeches And Eliphaz here in chapter 15 leads us off, and uh, this is God's holy word. Then Eliphaz the Timonite answered and said, Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill his belly with the east wind? Should he argue in unprofitable talk or in words with which he can do no good? But you are doing away with the fear of God and hindering meditation before God. For your iniquity teaches your mouth and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you and not I. Your own lips testify against you. Are you the first man who was born? Or were you brought forth before the hills? Have you listened in the counsel of God? Do you limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we do not know? What do you understand that is not clear to us? Both the gray-haired and the aged are among us, older than your father. Are the comforts of God too small for you, or the word that deals gently with you? Why does your heart carry you away, and why do your eyes flash that you turn your spirit against God and bring such words out of your mouth? What is man, that he can be pure, or he who is born of a woman, that he can be righteous? Behold, God puts no trust in his holy ones, and the heavens are not pure in his sight how much less one who is abominable and corrupt, a man who drinks injustice like water. The arguments that Eliphaz brings up against Job are some of the same old arguments that have always been leveled against the doctrines of grace. Paul, in the letter to the Romans in chapter 6, begins with the rhetorical questions, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Leading up to that point, Paul has been clearly and carefully expounding the doctrines of grace. And basically what he has been teaching is that we are sinners saved by grace. We are unable to save ourselves from the wrath of God, which we deserve because of our disobedience to God's law. Nevertheless, God has in Jesus Christ graciously provided a Savior who has met the requirements of the law for us through his death and sinless life. And Romans teaches us that we have done and can do nothing to save ourselves. And in the end, the doctrines of grace insist that God is the one who has done everything to save us. And the doctrines of grace stand squarely against the natural thinking of man which is that the way to get right with an angry God is by doing religious and moral good works that please him. So man, according to his natural thinking, will admit, yes, I have sinned and I have offended God. But then he goes on to say, but I can restore my relationship with God by using good works to earn his favor. Doesn't this sound an awful lot like the theological system of Job's friends, including Eliphaz? They have insisted that if on the one hand we do bad things, evil things, sinful things, our lives will be filled with trouble because of God's anger against us. On the other hand, if we do good things in obedience to God, our lives will be filled with nothing but the blessings of a life of pleasure and ease. So that essentially the system of Job's friends, this theological system, this worldview of Job's friends is no different than pagan religion and its system of works' righteousness, it's helpful in understanding what Eliphaz is saying to Job here in chapter fifteen to recall what Eliphaz originally said to Job back in chapters four and five, I'd have you turn in your Bibles back to those chapters. I'm not going to read through them, but if you skim along as I summarize what Eliphaz said earlier back in chapters four and five, so in chapter four. Verses 1 through 11, Eliphaz begins with what I would call a tactful and gentle approach, at least in comparison to what we have here in chapter 15. Back in chapter 4, he calls on Job to remember how he has counseled suffering people, and through that counseling has helped them to endure patiently with what they're going through. And Job is now told by Eliphaz, you need to take your own instruction to heart and apply it to yourself. And Eliphaz initially acknowledges that Job may, in fact, be a man who fears God and is blameless. So he's willing to acknowledge that that's a possibility. And remember, blameless is not perfect. But a blameless man is one who repents of his sin. He's one who keeps short accounts with God. At the same time, Eliphaz explains that when someone experiences the intense judgment of God, it is because of his sin. God never destroys the innocent. But he comes against those who plow iniquity, iniquity that causes them to reap trouble. Then in chapter four, verses 12 through chapter five, verse seven, Eliphaz explains this this eerie vision that came to him in a dream that we assume he believes came from God. Um, and the two rhetorical questions at the heart of this section are found there in verse seventeen. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? And Eliphaz is expecting these questions to be answered in the negative, that man cannot be in the right before God, that man cannot be pure before God. And Eliphaz explains that not even the angels have been pure, much less mortal man. And Eliphaz's conclusion is that for us dust creatures who sin regularly, there's nothing to do but accept the trouble that we bring on ourselves. He maintains that if you fight against God and insist that you shouldn't have to experience trouble, you're showing yourself to be a fool and worthy of more trouble. And then in chapter 5, verses 8 through 16, these verses present Eliphaz's instruction Uh, instruction to Job about what to do. He says, basically, Job should seek God. He should seek God. And God is described as the great creator and sustainer of life. He is the source of everything good, a God who helps the lowly and oppressed. And Eliphaz is telling Job in a veiled way that he needs to humbly seek God's forgiveness, to seek restoration from the hand of God, and that if he is in the right, all will be well. Job's troubles will surely turn around, because while believers are not exempt from suffering, it's not going to continue, Eliphaz believes, if one is right with God. And then chapter 5, verses 17 through 27 present yet another veiled accusation of sin, as Eliphaz suggests that Job is receiving judgment from God as discipline. And the word refers to judgment that comes in response to a particular moral failure And so he apparently believes that Job has sinned in some way. That's what accounts for his suffering. But he assures Job that if he will accept this discipline as a blessing from God and learn from it, God will reverse the judgments and will restore him to prosperity. Because discipline is sent as a blessing. It's, It's sent to turn the sinner from his sin and thus to allow him to experience God's favor. And so, Eliphaz's thinking in his first speech can be explained rather succinctly. He believes that God's people can expect to experience suffering because we sin, but not suffering that is lasting and that is intense as long as we learn from our mistakes and seek God in repentance. We can expect troubles because we're not perfect, we're not living in a perfect world, but we can also expect a life of prosperity to the degree that we repent. And do good works. But as long as we continue in sin, we are to expect problems. And when Eliphaz said these things, Job had not been suffering for long. It seems that Eliphaz was hopeful that Job was experiencing trouble that would be temporary and short-lived. Because if, in fact, Job is fearing God and blameless, and thus, and thus is a man of repentance, then surely his circumstances are going to turn around shortly. We don't know how much longer it was before Eliphaz spoke again, as we find it recorded in chapter 15. Uh, it may be that all of these speeches occurred within a few hours or days, but more likely many days and even weeks have passed uh, between these various speeches delivered by Job's friends, and at some point Eliphaz would have concluded that Job's suffering had gone on for a time beyond what a godly person would be expected to endure. And Eliphaz has presumably heard the speeches of Bildad and Zophar, as well as Job's responses to those men. And Job has consistently claimed to be a man of wisdom, who fears God, a man who is blameless. And to summarize what Job has been saying all along, he says, I am an innocent sufferer. According to Job, God does not send suffering to innocent people, um, or, or I should say does send suffering to innocent people, but not as though any of us are perfect But God does send suffering sometimes that is not in response to particular sins or because of a need for discipline. And Job has insisted that in in his case, that is exactly the case, that he cannot think of any particular sin. He knows of no sin. He's been repenting of sin. There is no reason that he can think of why God would send this suffering, and Eliphaz apparently doesn't buy it. The idea of an innocent sufferer whose suffering goes on and on, whose suffering is as intense as what Job is experiencing, doesn't fit into Iliphaz's system of theological beliefs. And to follow Iliphaz's line of thought through verse 16, here in chapter 15, um, he says Job's claim to be an innocent sufferer is empty, it's dangerous, it's arrogant, it's argumentative, and it's unrealistic. And these will be the, the main points of, of this morning's message, uh, that Job's claim to be an innocent sufferer is empty, it is dangerous, it is arrogant, it is argumentative, and it is unrealistic. Some of these adjectives I borrowed from Christopher Ashe in his uh, very helpful commentary. And so basically, Job is accused of proud and sinful speech and his claim that he is an innocent sufferer. So we turn to considering chapter 15 in detail. Notice that in chapter 15, verses 1 through 16, we find really the, the very same arguments that Iliphaz introduced in chapters 4 and 5, but now expanded as he responds a second time to Job's words. So in verses 2 and 3, Job is accused of being a man who thinks he is wise, but whose speech is ultimately empty. Should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fill his belly with the east wind? Should he argue in unprofitable talk or in words with which he can do no good? Job has insisted that he is just as wise as his friends in his understanding of of God in the world. Um, In chapter 12, verse 3, he says, But I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you who does not know such things as these. In chapter 13, verse 2, he says, What you know I also know. I am not inferior to you. And Eliphaz says that Job's wisdom is betrayed by words that are empty. What Job has said is supposedly like wind that just blows around, accomplishing nothing. Bildad said essentially the same thing back in chapter 8, verse 2 where he says to Job, how long will you say these things and the words of your mouth be a great wind? And uh, we use a similar expression for someone who sounds wise and knowledgeable, but whose words are ultimately useless and unprofitable, and we say that person is full of hot air. And uh, the prevailing winds in Israel were from the west, cool winds that would come off of the sea, but Eliphaz refers to winds that periodically would come off of the desert to the east. They were indeed hot winds, and by referring first to windy knowledge in general, and then specifically to wind from the east, we perhaps um, can picture in our minds Job's words as being like one, uh, as, as, as like wind blowing from one direction and then from another. And the point then would be that Job is talking in contradictions, alternating back and forth, that he's unsettled in uh, what he believes and what he is claiming, and and we can you know if we can step back and just uh, look at what Job has been saying, we can understand how he might be accused of talking out of both sides of his mouth. I don't believe he has been, but we can see how he might be accused of that because on the one hand, he has insisted he is not perfect. Yeah, I think that's important to understand. He has not claimed to be sinless. He has admitted he is not perfect. But then if that's the case, you can imagine Eliphaz saying, well, then why is he complaining about his suffering? Because if he's been sinning, then he deserves to suffer. And on the other hand, there are times when it seems that Job is saying he is perfect, and we've talked about that. He's not saying he's completely perfect, but he is. He is claiming innocent in terms of any particular sin that would account for him losing his family, his wealth, and his health, and the in the, the terrible things that has happened. And yet, the way he words it, I can see someone saying, well, it seems like he's saying he's perfect. But then if that is true, Eliphaz could point out, then why is he suffering? Um, so no matter what Job says, it doesn't make sense, according to, to the theological system of Job's friends. It's like wind blowing back and forth. And rather than really trying to understand Job's point and his perspective, Eliphaz joins with his friends in belittling Job as talking nonsense. And then in verses 4 through 6, so moving now into the next section of verses 4 through 6, Eliphaz accuses Job of saying things that are spiritually dangerous. He tells Job that he is doing away with the fear of God and hindering meditation before God, he says that he is using his tongue in sinful ways. And to summarize Eliphaz's accusations, he is claiming that what Job has been defending is doctrine that leads people away from a right relationship with God, a relationship marked by a fear of God and and marked by meditation on, on God and his word. We are called to fear God, which means to honor God, to have reverence for God that manifests itself in worshiping God and seeking to obey him. And meditation here is a word that is related to a life of devotion to God that refers to thinking upon God's word or praying to God, basically to think about God in a devotional and pious way that goes along with a relationship with God of loving fellowship. And Eliphaz accuses Job of doing away with the fear of God, doing away with meditation before God through what he has been saying. So the accusation is that Job is saying sinful and crafty things that undermine a life of devotion to God. So what has Job been saying that Eliphaz is here attacking? I mean, Eliphaz is speaking here rather generally. He doesn't offer any specific accusations, and so it seems safe to assume that Eliphaz is attacking the general arguments that Job has been making. In other words, Eliphaz is not attacking one particular statement that Job has made, but the general system of what Job has been saying in his defense. And again, what he has been saying, if we want to summarize it rather simply, is that he is an innocent sufferer. He is claiming to be receiving suffering that is not in response to any particular sin. He is claiming to be suffering even though he has a right relationship with God. He is claiming that what he's experiencing doesn't seem right even to him. For he, like his friends, tends to believe that suffering is in response to sin. But Job knows his own heart. He knows his life. He knows that he is a man of repentance. He knows there are no outstanding sins that need God's attention in the form of judgment or discipline. And I've taken what Eliphaz is saying in verses 4 through 6 as really the heart of his conflict with Job. This is where, in particular, we find Eliphaz attacking the doctrines of grace. For basically what Eliphaz and his friends are advocating is a salvation system based on works righteousness. Let's consider in a kind of summary way what Eliphaz believes based on what he says here as well as what he said earlier In chapters 4 and 5. So, Eliphaz believes that we sin constantly, and because of that, we deserve a life marked by troubles as punishment from God. And uh, we can go along with that to some degree, although we would want to explain how the gospel of forgiveness of sins in Christ would affect this. For we, as believers, are no longer punished for sin in any kind of judicial sense after Jesus suffered all that our sins deserve, all, took, took upon himself all of the punishment, all of the wrath of God, all of the justice that our sins deserve. But yes, generally it is true that sinners deserve punishment because of sin. And even as believers, we can expect chastening and discipline, but as a loving kind of punishment to lead us to repentance. Eliphaz also believes that God relents from punishment when we seek him. And I'm hoping that Ilifaz, he, he talked about seeking God back in, in chapter 5. I'm hopeful that he includes in that idea of seeking God and asking him for forgiveness of one's sins. And if that's the case, then we can agree with him. Uh, when we humbly seek God's forgiveness, he's going to forgive us. He's going to bless us with a relationship of, of, of fellowship. He, he's going to, we're going to be justified in God's sight. And if we're being chastened to lead us to repentance, once the repentance takes place, the, the chastening will end. But sometimes we also continue to suffer the consequences of sin even after being forgiven. Uh, the common illustration of that would be King David with, who had all kinds of family problems that could be traced back to his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. And he experienced these things even after being forgiven. It's also the case which Eliphaz doesn't seem to believe that life in this sin-cursed world is going to involve problems, even if we are right with God. But Eliphaz, in fact, believes that if we live lives of obedience, we will experience an earthly life of prosperity, free of problems. I want to say that again. He says that if we live lives of obedience, we are to expect to experience a life of prosperity, free of problems. I would describe his view as a modified prosperity gospel view that in some ways is better than the prosperity gospel message of today, but ultimately ends up as the same false gospel. Where Eliphaz's version is better is that he does at least allow for the suffering of believers as a normal part of living in a fallen world. Best as I can tell, Eliphaz is not shocked that believers suffer. He's not dismayed that believers suffer, but he does think that if believers suffer intensely and for a long time, there must be a sin problem that has not been dealt with properly. And this is different than the prosperity gospel proponents of today who lead us to think that it is possible to have a life completely free of trouble. Uh, if we experience any suffering at all, it's because we're not doing things right morally and spiritually. Uh, the problem, as they would put it, is you're not 100% surrendered to God, or you don't have enough faith, or you have fallen into some sin, but yet the prosperity gospel folks of today make it sound like it's possible to never experience suffering. It's up to you to conduct yourselves a certain way to get this highly desirable result. If you think about it, it means they have to have a very shallow view of sin, a very shallow view of how that sin pervades our lives. But Eliphaz, if we understand him, thinks that a life completely free of suffering is never going to happen because we sin way too often. At the same time, he fits in the camp of the prosperity gospel because in the end he says that if Job will seek God, presumably will repent of his sin, And if he will not despise the chastening that he's receiving, his life will turn around. His life will become one again of prosperity and ease under the favor of God. And this is where we find the attack on grace taking place because the prosperity gospel worldview is based on the idea that we, by our good works, bring ourselves into God's favor and that it's our behavior that earns God's blessings. It says that our favor with God in terms of our everyday experiences is not based on the merits of Jesus Christ, but on what we do or don't do. The system of Job's friends agrees with this by explaining the troubles of life as punishment for sin. And over against this view comes Job, who says that he is an innocent sufferer. He is saying that as a man of faith, righteous in the sight of God, living a life of repentance, he hasn't done anything to account for losing his family, his wealth, and his health. And of course, we know by direct revelation from God that's, that occurs to us in, the, in chapter one, that that's true. Job is correct. And to understand how Eliphaz's system is an attack on grace, we need to understand why Eliphaz, why the rest of Job's friends are so upset with what Job is saying. There's the obvious matter of how Job's claim to innocence sounds prideful. In verses 7 through 10, there are a number of rhetorical questions that are asked by Eliphaz that are geared toward painting Job as this man who thinks that he knows it all and who apparently is so high and mighty as to know things that no one but him and God know. So verses 7 through 10, Are you the first man who was born, or were you brought forth before the hills? Have you listened in the counsel of God, and do you limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we do not know? What do you understand that is not clear to us? Both the gray-haired and the aged are among us, older than your father. And Eliphaz is clearly upset by what he considers to be Job's prideful attitude, where Job is supposedly claiming to be this great exception to how God normally operates in the universe, And, and Job supposedly has some special knowledge that no other human being on earth has. And it's likely that Eliphaz believes Job is making this crazy claim of innocence as really a way to draw attention, um, to draw attention away from the real issue which is that Job knows he is guilty. If you look with me back at verse 5, uh, where it says, for your, for your iniquity teaches your mouth. In other words, it is your, 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 your iniquity that, that is telling your mouth what to say, that's guiding what you say, what you teach. Um, it's possible that that word iniquity there in, uh, in, in this context is referring specifically to the guilt of sin and in particular to Job's sense of guilt, so that Eliphaz would then be saying to Job, for your sense of guilt reaches your mouth. In other words, Job, the sinful, crafty words that are coming out of your mouth as you defend yourself are really motivated by your sense of guilt. And Eliphaz's perspective is that Job, rather than humbly admitting his sin, is going to keep insisting that there is this impossible thing of an innocent sufferer, even though such a thing has, according to Eliphaz, never existed before, now we are to suddenly believe it's happening with Job. And so from Eliphaz's point of view, this is but another way that Job is showing himself to be prideful and stubborn. And yet there is something much worse going on since Eliphaz believes that Job is doing away with the fear of God and hindering meditation before God. He is supposedly using his mouth to teach things that undermine a life of devotion to God. And it's not difficult to see what is bothering Iliphaz. For Job is saying that curses do not necessarily follow vice. And that blessings do not necessarily follow virtue. The accusation then from Iliphaz is, is probably that age-old accusation that as soon as you say that God does not have to operate according to strict justice, but can operate according to grace, and, and, and you admit that God doesn't always give people what they deserve, then you take away all incentive to do good works. You take away all incentive to live a pious life. Likely, Eliphaz is convinced that if what Job is claiming is true, people are going to reject the system, And are going to become morally lax. Now, he doesn't say this straight out, but this fits perfectly with what he has just said about Job. And furthermore, this idea that grace makes people morally lax, it's the main argument that has been through the ages leveled against the doctrines of grace. It is said that if you take away the necessity of good works for earning God's favor, or claim that you can have a pleasant life without, without being obedient to God, then all concern about fearing God and pleasing God is taken away. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul was fighting against as he wrote Romans 6. He begins by stating the question raised by those who disagree with the doctrines of grace. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? The enemies of grace always portray grace as leading sinners to think that sin is okay. Apparently, the enemies of grace that Paul knew were arguing that if God is glorified through the forgiveness of sins, then the more you sin, the more he will be glorified. To state the argument bluntly, grace encourages you to sin. And sin must be a good thing if ultimately it glorifies God's grace. And so God's grace then is portrayed as the enemy of righteousness. And uh, we'll talk about that more in a moment. But for now, let's finish up what Eliphaz is saying about Job's words. So in verses 11 through 13, Eliphaz is admonishing Job to turn from an approach to suffering that is argumentative, that's only creating angst and anger. Again, verses 11 through 13, are the comforts of God too small for you or the words that, or the word that deals gently with you? Why does your heart carry you away and why do your eyes flash that you turn your spirit against God and bring such words out of your mouth? So Eliphaz accuses Job of rejecting the comforts of God that have come as a gentle word. He says, Job's heart has been carried away, his eyes are flashing with anger, his spirit is turned against God, and Job's words have been intense, right? They've been intense in the context of expressing his desire to have a meeting with God, and he, he longs to hear God's explanation for what is happening, and he rejects the implications of what his friends are saying, and, and uh, he accuses them uh, of not really listening and not understanding And I take Eliphaz to be saying, Job, we haven't asked you to do anything terribly difficult. If you'll just admit your sin and seek God's forgiveness, then all of this trouble can be put behind you. We've not been telling you to do impossible things. We've come to you genuinely concerned for you. We're trying to help. We're bringing words of wisdom that are clear and simple. But you've chosen to reject all of this. You've gotten yourself all worked up, and this is just not necessary. Listen to us. Do what we have said. Stop pridefully insisting on your innocence and come clean. That's all you've got to do. And everything will turn around. And then in verses 14 through 16, we have a description of man's total depravity. What is man that he can be pure? Or who is born of a woman that he can be righteous? Behold, God puts no trust in his holy ones. And the heavens are not pure in his sight. How much less one who is abominable and corrupt Man who drinks injustice like water. And the point is that Job can talk about how he doesn't deserve the judgments he has received until he is blue in his face, but the truth, Eliphaz insists, is that no one can be pure and righteous. And so this idea of Job being an innocent sufferer is just utterly unrealistic. And so along these lines, Eliphaz paints a very ugly picture of man's sinful corruption. Uh, describing fallen man as disgusting to God, we are abominable, we are corrupt, we drink injustice like water. And so for Job to insist that he doesn't deserve the punishment that he has received is to deny man's depravity. As we close, let us take some time to further consider this attack on grace that Eliphaz and many others have leveled over the years. And what this attack is ultimately about is Pride. Actually, Eliphaz is the prideful one. The enemies of grace are the prideful ones because man doesn't want to admit that he is saved by grace. Grace alone. Because then all of the credit for salvation goes to God. And man wants to be able to boast in himself before God. That's what's really happening. We need to understand that. But since the heart is deceitful, the issues are painted in a way that make the rejectors of grace seem like the pious ones. For, for example, the accusation is made that people who claim to be saved by grace are hypocrites. They claim to be right with God, claim to be forgiven, claim to even be righteous in the sight of God, and yet they still sin. And so their trust in grace is a deceptive and crafty way just for them to feel good about themselves. It's a way of self-justification by which they can get themselves and others to think that they're okay when they're not. Or if you say you trust in God's grace in Christ, that you know you're going to heaven, you will be accused of being arrogant. They can't get beyond the thinking that heaven is the reward for good works. And so if I claim that I know God is going to be gracious to me and give me heaven, they see this as boasting. The problem is that even the idea of God's grace is beyond them. They don't really grasp it. They think that God's grace means him deciding to be kind and relent from punishment. And they imagine that only happening if they are good enough, if they do works and enough works to appease God. And so for you to say you know you're going to heaven is viewed as saying you are better than everybody else and that you think that you have earned God's favor. And so again, trust in grace is associated by the world with pride. And if you say you are trusting in the grace of God to save you through the merits of Christ, that you do not have to do good works to save yourself, the enemies of grace will say that you're just using grace as an emotional crutch because you can't cope with the demands of living a moral life. You're not willing to fight sin. You're not willing to strive to live a godly life. You want to be able to just cast away all of that responsibility, all of the demands of God's law. You just want to be able to relax, and consequently, you use grace as a cop-out. And above all, the enemies of grace insist that it's unrealistic to think that you can be in the right before God. The enemies of grace will say that a truly realistic and humble sinner will admit he does wrong and then will do his best to turn his life around and do what is right. But yet all he can hope is that God will perhaps be merciful and will forgive him for doing his best. And if the sinner ever comes to think that he has done enough, he's being proud He's giving in to the temptation of the devil to become morally complacent. And so then again, grace is painted as a cause of pride and sin. People of God, grace is not the enemy of righteousness. Grace does not make us morally complacent when it is understood properly. Grace is the undeserved favor of God that is exemplified in him sending Jesus to suffer and die under the penalty of our sin Rather than grace being about laxity towards sin, grace is actually about God justly punishing Jesus in our place. And the good news that God has for us, poor sinners, is that if we repent of our sins and put our trust in Jesus' person and work for the forgiveness of our sins, we will be forgiven and we will be saved. Scripture is clear that trust in Jesus means no longer trusting in your own righteousness. In fact, turning away from that whole practice of trying to earn favor with God through good works. Faith is trusting that Jesus has already done all that is needed for us to be received into God's favor. And while that kind of faith might sound like it makes us lax towards sin, Paul in Romans 6, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, utterly denies that claim. He he asks, how... How shall we, he goes on to ask, how shall we who have died to sin still live in it? When we come to trust Christ, we come as those who have been given new hearts. We've And according to those new hearts, we have died to sin. We hate sin. We repent of sin. We come to Christ with hearts that love God, that want to please him. And while it is true, we do not live perfectly holy and righteous lives. As people of faith, we strive after holiness out of gratitude for God's grace. So that God's grace actually becomes the true motivator, the real motivator to good works. So let's apply this then to Job and to all suffering Christians who have received by faith the grace of God in Christ Jesus. When we suffer, we are not suffering punishment as wrath from God, as those who are in the right with God. Yes, contrary to Eliphaz, man can be pure before God and can be in the right with God. Yes, through Christ, through faith, through receiving his righteousness, and when we are in the right with God, when we suffer, we suffer as people who are innocent in the sight of God. Yes, we still sin. And so it is true that we can never claim to not deserve suffering. And so Eliphaz, we might say, is partly right. But since God has promised to never come against us in wrath, suffering is always going to serve a good and helpful purpose in your life, believer. Now, your suffering might be chastening. But if, it's, if it is chastening, if it is sent in, in response to a particular sin, it is God in love coming to you, seeking your repentance, that you will turn back to him. Maybe simply God's desire that you suffer for reasons known only to him. But you must be assured that because of what Christ has accomplished on your behalf, because you are in the right with God, ultimately that suffering serves your good and his glory, even if you do not understand how and why. We know that Job's suffering was sent as a test to prove his faith, to prove that Satan was wrong. Satan says God's people only serve God for the good things he gives them. And uh, God said, Go ahead and take away all of the good things that Job has been experiencing, and you will see he still will trust me. He will still love me. It's not all about the things. And so that was what was going on behind Job's suffering. It was not punishment. It was not even chastening. People don't want to believe that there is such a thing as innocent suffering because then they would have to accept the fact that God has in grace provided a way to escape the punishment that his law demands. And a way to escape it that doesn't need us. And of course, we must not forget Jesus was an innocent sufferer. He did not suffer for his own sins. He suffered because our sins were laid on him. And Job's sufferings anticipate the sufferings of our Lord. Think about how both Job and Jesus were persecuted as sinners who supposedly deserved what they were getting. Both were hated because of their testimonies to the grace of God. And You and I are called to be sinners who put our hope in the gracious sufferings of Jesus. And when you do that, you can rejoice that your suffering is part of God's loving and gracious plan for you. That is what the innocent suffering of Jesus has earned for you. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, uh, we do thank you for grace, for the grace that you have extended to us in Christ enabling us, as sinful as we are, to be right with you, to be innocent in your sight, justified through faith in Christ. Father, we thank you that we do not have to earn salvation through our works. We thank you, Father, that, in fact, Christ has accomplished everything for us. And we know, Father, that that is, in fact, what truly leads sinners to Uh, to to, to pursue a life of holiness. Father, we, we want to please you. We want to be obedient to you because of the grace that you've extended to us. So, Father, help us to never give in to the lies of those who say that grace is an enemy of righteousness. Father, what we need more and more is to know your grace, to know your love for us, that we would respond in love to you. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the suffering that goes on in our lives in a biblical way. Uh, we thank you for giving us the book of Job. We thank you for giving us the Lord Jesus Christ who suffered in our place, uh, suffered for sin that he did not deserve, um, for, for things that uh, suffering under the, the curse of our sin. He who is without sin, suffering as though the sinner. Father, we thank you for what he was willing to do for our salvation